the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Did you know that we are still losing our loved ones to COVID-19? Dr. Jason Kinderchuk explains. And did you also know that we have thousands of unpaid caregivers across this country? One gentleman shares his story of health, care, love, and loss across borders. And who experiences more headaches? Tune in to learn more. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Maureen's Health Headline. Dr. Kinderchuk joins me on this Easter Sunday Passover. He's an assistant professor, Department of Medical Microbiology, and a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Re-Emerging Viruses. You've certainly heard his voice before, this associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry, College of Medicine, and Allied Health Sciences at the University of Sierra Leon, good evening, Dr. Kindrachuk. How are you? Doing okay. Just uh, just actually chilling out to some uh, some old school Pink Floyd tonight. So just just relax. Oh, oh, fantastic! <laughs> well, sorry to interrupt that relaxation. Oh with, no, um, no, absolutely. <laughs> little bit of news that the uh, COVID is still alive and unwell, keeping <laughs> a lot of people unwell, and actually, surprisingly enough, to some people. Um, many people are still hospitalized and there are still lots of people dying from this infection. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? We've, we've had this discussion now, I, I think, certainly through the, the better part of 2022 so far about what, what the virus is doing. And, and with Omicron, you know, there, there was this narrative that got sown pretty quickly of saying, Okay, listen, what looks like it's less severe than Delta, which then became, I think, amplified to, oh, it's less severe overall. And it'll look, you know, perhaps the virus is losing its overall virulence and we're getting to a point that that it's going to start to settle down. Well, the, the data is not necessarily going that direction. So what, what certainly uh, looks to, to be coming out uh, and, and definitely from the, the data from uh, Hong Kong is that BA2 at the very least, looks to be about as severe as the original ancestral strain from early 2020. So if we go way back to even before Alpha, um, you know, the, the original strain that, uh, that, that we saw that, that emerged, uh, the, the severity for Omicron is not that different. So what does that start to tell us? Well, th- this idea that the virus is inevitably going to become more transmissible but less virulent, we have to appreciate that these events are still random. So right now, we're not seeing a shift from what we saw with, with the original ancestral strain. Now, less severe than Delta. We, we're, we're in a different place now that we have vaccines uh, and, and certainly with therapeutics on board and, and supportive care measures. But we have to appreciate that we still have a long ways to go with, with getting this under control. And people are still dying. I actually yeah. um, mentioned that to somebody that, you know, 600 people died in the U.S. this week, and that would be about 60 people in Canada would have died of uh, coronavirus. And, and a lot of people are kind of saying, oh, that's nothing. You know, it's nothing when you don't love them or care for them or know them. Um, but it's still a significant amount of people that are dying from what a lot of people are calling the common cold. Uh, I have to say that I deal with a, a fair number of people in one of the projects that I'm doing um, who people who are diagnosed with COVID and um, they're quite sick for a number of days and they are not only fully vaccinated. Well, they are fully vaccinated because the CDC definition of that is to include boosted. So these people are boosted and they're actually getting pretty sick. It's keeping them definitely off their Pelotons, but down for the count for five days with nasal congestion, sore throat, fever, chills, um, it's taken them a while. Well, we get into this position of, and, and certainly in, in you know, different different response documents and and uh, in discussions that, that I've had, um, where we talk about you know, often the mortality associated with the disease, but we don't tend to talk that much about the morbidity, or we tend to downplay what morbidity is. And this idea of febrile illness and being sick and what that costs. Well, we think certainly in in our own situation, uh, you know, we we have close friends that you know have their entire households have been sick and it's sort of, you know circulated through, and people have been off their feet, and they're not able to to go to work. But we start to look at not only the health impact, but then the economic impact of people that can't get to work because they're sick. So yes, we are in a better position, 
But if we think and look at this disease just based on number of people that are dead or dying, um, we tend to lose out on that aspect of the impact that this that this virus will continue to have. And that's why we continue to talk, and certainly I continue to talk about the, the idea that we're not at a point where this is endemic yet. It's going to inevitably become this. Um, but certainly as we've removed restrictions and we've removed all those kind of the, those safety nets that we've had, um, we've seen a resurgence and we still don't have this under control. So I, I think, you know, we're, we're figuring it out, um, but it's, it's going to take some time yet. Uh, it certainly is. And, you know, it, it it's just uh, so surprising to me where, you know, this has been so politicized as, as we know. Um, but, you know, people who didn't want to listen to the politicians, but as soon as the politicians said, you know, remove the protections, and that's basically what mask wearing and not coming to work sick are. They're basically protections or in, to improve the um, the air cleanliness. You know, we don't, we don't talk a lot about air purification, but that's very important in uh, prevention of COVID-19 as one of the mitigation strategies. Um, but people were very quick to take their masks off and, and gather once again in crowds. But as you mentioned, we're having a resurgence here. I just want to say to the listeners, if anyone has a call for Dr. Kinderchuk, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's one 399 9898 In fact, Dr. Kinderchuk, I was on and got on an elevator. I mean, I'm still wearing my mask. Um, yep. I'm going indoors to places, but not restaurants. <laughs> but I was in an elevator. And, you know, I'm always uncomfortable when people get in on the elevator, especially if they don't have a mask on. And this family got in, family of three. And the older mother had her mask on, but the son didn't and the granddaughter didn't. And I just think, you know, I mean, obviously the, the mother yeah. was nervous or being careful, doesn't want to get COVID because advancing age is considered a comorbidity as well. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on, on mask wearing and as a protection? Well, you know, I, I, you know, call me pragmatic, but when, when I think about this idea of, of viruses and, and, and microbes and different pathogens in general, we have to appreciate these are, you know, organisms or, or, or you know, entities that for ages have been able to, to change and adapt and find ways around our, our defenses. So when we think about this idea of, of trying to combat infectious diseases, we have to appreciate that, listen, we can throw up one defense that we think is going to be the, the ultimate defense. Pathogens are going to find a way around that. We've seen it with antibiotics. We've seen that with certainly with vaccines. We've seen that with antivirals. It's about multiple layers. So we, we've got to, you know, again, get back to this, this idea of a, a very, you know, kind of, I, I guess, maybe straightforward approach of saying, okay, we need multiple layers. All of these things in tandem work well. But when you look at them as just a single piece or, or a single protection, um, they're not going to provide you with everything that you need. So for, you know, my own situation, we've got family members that are uh, highly vulnerable. Um, yes, we are all vaccinated. We have rapid tests. We're, we're testing all the time when something comes up because we don't want to expose uh, the, those family members. But we still use masks, even with even if we're not seeing them. We use masks in our daily life because we don't want to be in a position where one of us gets sick or has an asymptomatic infection and then ultimately passes it on. Um, and, and it's about, again, this idea of constantly doing risk assessments um, of, of what's going on. Harder now that there's not a lot of surveillance in the community, but you can still try and, and, and take a, a very careful approach. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. If you have any questions that you would like to call us with or text, the number to call or text is one 399 That's one 399 Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk. I do have a couple of questions for you. Um, here's the first one, dear Dr. Kinderchuk, I have had three Pfizer shots for the fourth shot. What non MRNA vaccines are available in Ontario? Oh, I think the only one right now for non MRNA, well, I guess J and J is, uh, is still open, uh, but Novavax as well as moved into Canada. Um, Novavax is, is a protein based, uh, vaccine that we, we've all kind of been waiting for. Uh, to, to see it, uh, it get distributed. Um, the question is going to be what what that looks like. So, you know, when we keep kind of doing these these combinations, 
Um, one of the things we have to appreciate is certainly for the fourth dose is we don't have a lot of mix and match data yet to say what that's mm-hmm. going to look like for protection. I think that's going to be a, a really critical thing of do we want to try and, and take that that chance to what do we think we'll see and what does the early data, data tell us? And I, I don't know what that says yet. Right, because um, mostly, I, I mean, I haven't heard of too many people wanting uh, J&J after they've had the mRNA series yeah. or um, having had three mRNA vaccines. The other question I have for you is, um, is it advisable to get um, the same three mRNA vaccines? Or, you know, you mentioned a little bit about mix and match or two yeah. Pfizer's and a Moderna just as good as three Pfizer's or two oh. Moderna and one Pfizer? It's a- it's a good question, right? I mean, listen, in, in theory, when you look at, at, at what the mRNA vaccines are, it, in reality, they're very, very similar, right? So you would ex- not expect to see that much of a difference. But there has been a little bit of difference with, with, with Moderna and Pfizer. And, and I think right now, it's, again, trying to kind of tease out what, what we have for data, but also appreciating that, certainly for schedules, when we start looking at data from international regions, we can't necessarily take that data and say, okay, well, that is equivalent to what we do in Canada because the, certainly the, the um, time differential between uh, different doses uh, also factors in. So I, can't, I, I think it's a matter of, of finding out what, what is being offered and currently what the data for Omicron specifically says. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we, we're, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to ventilation, but I feel that yeah, the questions from the listeners are more important. Um, so we'll get to those. Now, I know that there is some evidence to support that uh, individuals with that are less than 18 years of age who've had COVID-19 were more likely to receive a new diabetes diagnosis more than 30 days or 30 days or more after infection than those without COVID-19 and those with pre-pandemic acute respiratory infection. So this question relates to that. Um, Can the fine doctors speak to COVID diabetes and how idiots allow their kids to gather in schools? Are we okay? I'm not really sure what this person means by this, but are we okay with diabetes for old normal? Not to mention every case bringing organ damage just remains to be seen how bad. Thanks. (laughs) So I guess it's it's the school thing. Yeah. Go ahead. It's an issue of of schools. It's an issue of kids. And it's an issue of of the adults, right? So long COVID, certainly we we are learning more and more as as time goes on because we're getting basically a better real-time perspective of what long long COVID all encompasses, appreciating that long COVID is not just one uh, disorder. It's a number of disorders that, that are manifesting in, in different ways in people. Um, I think the big question is, is trying to figure out, certainly in kids, what, what is the, the, you know, the, the rate of, of long-term um, uh, you know, complications that we see uh, versus short-term complications in kids that get sick? And I think that's a big question. I think that's why I gain look at this and say, we need to be precautious Yes, kids get you know severe disease at a lower rate than what we see in adults, but there's a lot about this virus we do not fully understand, um, and time will tell us what that is. I would tend to be more precautious than assumptive in in saying, okay, well, kids are going to be okay, you know, probably for the most part, but there's going to be some that aren't. So let's you know let, let's be you know again somewhat pragmatic about how we approach this. Um, that's why I think the conversations need to continue. And that's why it, it drives me nuts when we talk about these things as far as, you know, masking, certainly ventilation, like you brought up, um, that this is a time period for us to start looking at changing and implementing these. Cause it's not just COVID it's infectious diseases and certainly respiratory infectious diseases, uh, more, more generally that, you know, we will benefit from in making these changes. Exactly. I think one more question we have time for. Um, how long does COVID stay in the air? I'm hearing divergent opinions. I don't think this is an opinion, but go ahead, Dr. Kinderchuk. For how long does it stay in the air? Oh, you know, this again, it's going to depend on, on, on situations, right? So the big question for us is, uh, is realistically, how much virus is released from an infected person? How long can it stay? And also, how much virus do you need for somebody to get infected, right? And these are things mm-hmm. that certainly with the variants that will shift. Um, we, we've seen certainly some differences in regards to the, uh, the R-naught value. So you know, the transmissibility of, of the variants as, a, as it's moved through time. What we should be appreciating is that 
um, we need to be filtering air. And there isn't a, an unequivocal time period where we could say, okay, you are for sure safe versus you are now probably at, at a higher rate of getting infected. We've just got to be able to say, listen, if there's low ventilation uh, in, in closed settings with a lot of people, you have a much higher risk of, of getting sick. Absolutely. Dr. Kindercheck, thank you so much, especially on this uh, holiday for joining us on the program and, and giving us all this great information. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Maureen. Teva Canada is the world's largest medicine cabinet offering generic specialty, biosimilar, and over-the-counter medicines to Canadians. They also provide resources to patients and caregivers. And as part of its commitment to the more than 8 million caregivers across Canada, Teva Canada has been looking at ways for Canadians to explore a brighter future for healthcare. How can healthcare be reimagined for the betterment of patients and caregivers at all stages of life? To move the conversation forward throughout the months of April and May, they've started a dialogue of shared experiences from some of Canada's brightest minds, caregivers, patients, and healthcare professionals, to create a new prescription for care. And they've developed a fabulous five part podcast series where notable healthcare thought leaders are sharing their views on what a new prescription for care would look like. And the host, Mark Stolo, is the CEO of People Before Patients, a movement that invites everyone to engage in healthcare reform. According to a general social survey done by Teva Canada Caregiving and Care Receiving, one in four Canadians age 15 or older are providing care for family members or friends with a long-term condition, a physical or mental disability, or problems related to aging. More than 20,000 respondents polled represented 31 million Canadians in that particular survey. Women account for almost two-thirds of caregivers providing 20 or more hours of care per week, and those providing that level of care are more likely to report their caregiving responsibilities to be stressful or very stressful. A further 86% of respondents who provide more than 20 hours of care per week felt they were unable to spend as much time with their family, and more than 78% reported less time participating in social activities with friends. My next guest knows this story all too well. Scott Swanson represents caregivers on the panel of experts on the event that's coming up on May 10th that Teva Canada is putting on on Facebook. And uh, he can discuss his experience and the many challenges of being an unpaid caregiver and what his ideas are to better the system where health and care can complement each other for the betterment of patients and caregivers. And he is on the line with me right now. Good evening, Scott. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. You have quite the story. Um, You cared for your daughter as well as your parents in a cross-border situation. That must have made um, being a caregiver incredibly stressful, as if it isn't stressful enough. Tell me a little bit, before we get into your personal story, and thank you so much for sharing that, tell me a little bit about caregivers and and the plight of caregivers. And and let's remember that most caregivers are unpaid in Canada. But um, tell me a little bit in general about what it's like to be a caregiver for a loved one. Yeah, well, you you gave a number of statistics there, which I think really kind of begin to open up uh, what this is like for so many people. Um, It's... uh, you know, there's this combination of both the stress of the caregiving itself, um, the, the the time that that requires, the the um, managing of schedules, the the various other things that that people have going on in their lives before whatever comes along, such that caregiving is required. And then, in addition to that, there's the emotional and the the spiritual and the, and the mental component of um, both the stress on the on the individual and depending on the situation that you're in and 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 what the prognosis is for the person that you're caring for um anticipatory grief or or uh, all all kinds of other emotional things that layer on top of the actual physically just trying to find the time in the day to do it mhm and i can imagine also i mean i know some of my patients um you know may have been married for 30 40 years and and all of a sudden they become a caregiver to their spouse uh, you know somebody 
with whom they've had an intimate relationship and that changes things. And, you know, it's very difficult mentally and emotionally and physically for people, not to mention financially. Um, but it can really change a relationship um, when you turn the tables and and you become a carer to somebody um, that that you were being cared for by, for example, um, if it's a parent to a child, um, or if it's a if it's a spouse, for example. Now you cared for both of your parents in the last years of their life. And um, in addition, you are a congregational minister who, um, you know, that's certainly a role in which you would be caring for a multitude of people. Um, So tell me the impact. Tell me what it was like um, to care for your parents in the last years of their lives. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was certainly challenging. Uh, partly because um, I knew what the the end of this was going to be. <laughs> as I said earlier, the the anticipatory grief and 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 as mm-hmm. things go along, and and in both of my parents' cases, their illnesses did not go on for uh, you know months and months and months or even years. Uh, but for people in that situation, there's there's also the issue around. Um, uh, uh, the, the complicated nature of grief, right? Like we begin to feel mm-hmm. guilty for the fact that we're resenting how much time we're giving to these people because we shouldn't be resenting it because, you know, in my case, they were my parents. I didn't get to that point, but I know many people do. Um, I was so fortunate, so blessed to have in both of their cases, um, they live across the border. They lived across the border in Bellingham, and um, uh, Whatcom County has a fantastic hospice system. And, um, uh, and and I was so fortunate to have access to the people there. My mom died before uh, the pandemic. My dad j- died during it. And as you know, the the border situation just um, exacerbated all of this by making it mm-hmm. um, virtually impossible to get down there. Um, and so really relying on people on the ground down there to be doing um, a lot of the work that I would have done or would have wanted to be able to have had a hand in. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me, your mom died first. What did your mom, uh, what, what was her illness? What, um, what prompted you to become, how did you know that it was time that you would need to be her caregiver? Uh, she phoned on uh, my wife's and uh, my wedding anniversary. We just opened a bottle of wine in October, and uh, the phone rang, and it was her, and she said, I'm in the hospital, and I have brain tumors. Oh. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Oh, my goodness. So the, uh, you know, it was into the car and crossed the border, and, and uh, down we went. And um, so that was in October, and she died in February. Uh, so it was, you know, it wasn't a matter of days. There was time. We had time to um, do what we wanted to do, say what we wanted to say. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and then she died in, in the, the following February. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. That must have just been shocking and, and horrible. And, I mean, just I, I can't even imagine. Um, and during that time, uh you were caring for her and was she hospitalized the entire time or did she come home? Yeah. You know, I should say I wasn't caring in the way that some people care for their loved ones. Like Mm -hmm. I, I I heard a story about during the the pandemic about a woman here in, in Vancouver who moved into her mother's room in her extended care residence, because if she left, she couldn't get back in. And she literally camped on her mother's floor for, like a year or something like that. So this was not that level of care, but this was more about um, wanting to be there. My dad wasn't really capable at that point of, of managing much. So there were, there were some decisions to be made. There was wanting to be with her, um, wanting to Mm -hmm. be with both of them. Uh, So it was more care at that, at that level. Mm -hmm. It was more presence than it was actually, you know, physically tending to her. 
yes but but even yeah. that you're still helping to arrange appointments you're oh, you know, sure. getting updates from the physicians as to the condition of your mom and um you know it, somebody's got to perhaps help with you know paying their bills or managing yeah. cars or you know yeah. all, took, all sorts of things over, yeah. they're took in, over all the their insurance and, Exactly. Of course. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Drove so, down, you know, picked her up, took her to appointments. Yeah. All that. Stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah. caregiver, care, caregiving is, you know, it's a continuum. There's a, a wide mm. a range of, of, of services basically that you're providing to exactly. uh, somebody that, that can no longer do that for themselves. Um, and so, tell me a little bit about your dad. Yeah, Dad, uh, he was 97 and a half when, when he died. He lived a long, full, wonderful life, and um, but he, he began to fail, um, well, before the pandemic started, and, um, uh, and, and his was just a gradual decline. Um, there, was, there was no, you know, great diagnosis or anything like that. He just, um, his body just eventually gave out, as bodies do, and... Um, we were so glad that we had um, at least we had a, a Zoom connection, and we had um, folks in the other end he was living who were willing to set up an iPad so that we could see him and have conversations with him. Um, but I did spend eight weeks in quarantine. From any time I went down, when I got back, it was two weeks at home. So um, uh-huh. it's. Uh, yeah, it was, it was an entirely different situation. And it, again, it was really a, a question of wanting to be there with him. I, I'm sure it was. And I'm, I'm yeah. certain that you were providing emotional support and, again, financial uh, support or taking over. You know, as as we mentioned, caregiving is, you know, a, a multitude of duties. And I'm sure you didn't even realize half of what you were doing uh, when you get into that mode and, and you were unpaid, I would imagine as in your caregiving role and and most caregivers across Canada are unpaid, which brings another whole level of stress. Um, you know, especially an economic stress on, on families. I had very understanding employers who gave me the the time and space I needed. Uh, but for people who have to take a leave, unpaid leave of absence from work, uh, yeah, absolutely. That just uh, makes everything harder. Mm-hmm. And don't underestimate what you what you did. I'm sure. I mean, just knowing a bit about your story and just you know, I, I'm 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 dual citizen as well. <laughs> I don't know if you are, but yeah. I mean, I I yes. could go back yeah. and forth during the pandemic um, a little bit more easily than at, at certain stages during the pandemic, a little bit more easily than, than other people. Um, but with that, you have to deal with two very different healthcare system systems, which I'm certain is, was a significant amount of stress uh, on your experience of caregiving. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how that system worked. I still don't, frankly. I mean, I have a bit of a sense of how it worked, but but I really relied on on you know people on the ground there who who understood how the system works because it because it is so different than ours. My guest is Scott Swanson. He is uh, he has been an unpaid caregiver, and as I mentioned earlier. In this uh, segment, uh, Teva Canada wants you to be a part of the conversation. And so they have started Prescription for Care. It is a five-part fabulous podcast series that have been developed to bring together thought leaders with various healthcare experience to give their ideas on how healthcare can be better delivered in the future. Scott represents the caregivers on this panel of experts that's going to be held on May 10th. And... uh, he discusses his experiences and the many challenges of being an unpaid caregiver. Scott is joining me on the line. We're talking about his experience, and we're also going to talk about his ideas to improve the system so that health and care may complement each other for the betterment of patients and caregivers. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Scott. Um, so what are some of your ideas to improve the caregiving situation in Canada? 
Well, you know, I th- when I think back on my experience, one of the most empowering moments for me, and, and there were many, but 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 a, a nice illustration of it is um, was in in relation to my dad, and he had had a fall, and there was an issue around medication, whether to continue it or not. And uh, I was up here, pandemics going on, couldn't get down there, and I had a phone call from uh, two uh, neurologists at the hospital in Bellingham, who spent about, I would say, 15 minutes on the phone with me, going through the uh, various options and, excuse me, the implications of of each of those, and and really bringing me into the decision-making process. Um, And and that felt so, um, it felt affirming, it felt empowering. I don't know that there's much, I don't know what, what can be done to help people navigate, you know, the kinds of things we were talking about in terms of, of the, just the difficult situation that caregiving is. But I think that when the formal system, which is under all of its the stresses that it's under, as we know, can can look to that informal system in a really open and respectful and collaborative way, then at least those of us who are on that other side, who are not medical professionals, who who may not know, you know, all the details of, of what's possible or not possible, at least we begin to feel like um, we are a part of the healthcare team. Um, in a, in in a in a significant and, and substantial way, and I think that I think that matters. I think that is actually wonderful, and you're going to be talking a little bit more about this, or a lot more about this, at the live Facebook event on May 10th. Is that right, Scott? That's right. Yeah, there's a panel right. of uh, five of us, and uh, we're looking forward to getting into that conversation. That's wonderful. After that fabulous five-part podcast series, Scott Swanson, thank you so much for sharing your story with uh, us tonight on the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Maureen. I appreciate the opportunity. You're very welcome. And you can find a new podcast episode every Tuesday between April 5th and May 3rd at www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. In addition, Teva Canada wants you to be a part of the conversation. They want your ideas, big and small, that would support caregivers and change the way we view and deliver health care in Canada. So check out their prescription for care survey at www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. In 10 minutes, you can have a say in the kind of health and care you'd like to see in the future. You're also invited to a special live virtual panel event on May 10th that brings our podcast experts together along with keynote speaker and former TSN host, Michael Landsberg, who is a fierce mental health advocate and caregiver himself. It promises to be an intriguing look at how health and wellness experts envision a more evolved healthcare system. That's Prescription for Care. Sign up for their Facebook live event on May 10th. Join in for a free virtual panel discussion on May 10th at 12 p.m. EDT, featuring notable healthcare thought leaders and, as I mentioned, keynote speaker Michael Landsberg. The panel will share experiences and explore ideas for the future of Canadian healthcare. Again, to listen to the podcast, participate in the survey, or register for the free event, visit www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. That's www.tevacanada.com forward slash prescription for care. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here hosting this program for you. Love your tax. Keep them coming. 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can call me. Don't be shy. I'm not going to bite your head off or anything. Uh, <laughs> never. Um, but before I get to my next subject, I just wanted to read a couple of your text messages, the ones that I'm able to read. Always be respectful, please, uh, when you send a text in, or I might have to diss your text. Um, hello, Maureen. Thank you for taking my question earlier. Also, thank you for saying at the beginning that your thoughts and prayers are with Ukraine. We can't do a lot for Ukraine, but we must also ask for divine help. 
May God richly bless you. Thank you so much. Of course, we always have to think of Ukraine. Donate if you can. Keep them in your thoughts and prayers. And, uh, you know, many people are heading over there uh, to help. And that is just a wonderful thing. And, and it, it's just such, a, it's so horrific, that situation. I cannot say how horrific it was. I also got a muzzle tub Maureen. That is that has such a nice ring to it, doesn't it? And also, here's another one. Hi, Maureen. I just heard an autism ad. I have Asperger's. Would you please talk about it on a future show? Some are thought of as sociopaths. I was diagnosed 18 years ago. You live a life emulating empathy. Some people like me learn the real thing. Others don't. Thank you so much. That's Ron from Burnaby, British Columbia. And um, thank you so much. That's such a great suggestion for a segment on a future show. I'll try to get an expert on that since I am not. But uh, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Right now, I want to talk a little bit about headaches. You know, I hear um, sometimes people will say, you know, they give me such a headache. I just think no one can actually give you a headache. (laughs) Just like no one can raise your blood pressure. Um, You know, a lot of these things are modifiable. A lot of the risk factors associated with headaches are modifiable. But there is a connection between headaches and hormones. And so women can blame their hormones. But actually, when kids are little in childhood, we have migraines are more prevalent in boys. But once the influence of estrogen begins, that's when the prevalence starts to rise in females. Women are more likely to experience headaches, about three times more likely to experience headaches than than men are. And uh, the fluctuating estrogen levels account for that. And they can contribute to the development of chronic headaches or migraines. Just the thought of the word headache, I just think, ah, I don't want to get a headache. I don't tend to get headaches, but the occasional time that I've had a headache, I I really, I am not a fan. Uh, So there are a lot of people, and I've talked about migraines on the show in the past. There are a lot of people who experience migraines and it's just, it can be a debilitating way to live. Um, but headaches can also really disturb a person's quality of life. And, um, and especially we see this in women because estrogen regulates the female reproductive system. And it also controls chemicals in the brain that impact the sensation of pain. So when estrogen levels drop, you can actually get a headache and, you know, it's a, Typically, it's the headache in the form of a migraine, and that can last anywhere from four to 72 hours. You hear about people who have to stay in a dark room because they have this migraine or they feel that a migraine is coming on. They may or may not get an aura associated with that. And determining the type of headache and finding the triggers plays a very important role in the treatment and the pain relief. Well, the reason or the the things that are associated with hormone levels are, are because hormone levels fluctuate at different times in a woman's life. They'll fluctuate before menstruation, and that's to prepare the uterus for menstruation. The estrogen levels drop shortly before you get your period, and then that drop can contribute to migraine headaches. During pregnancy, estrogen levels rise quickly, especially in the first trimester. After giving birth, your level of estrogen drops because it's no longer needed to support a pregnancy. And during perimenopause, which is the years leading up to menopause, and then the menopause, as your body prepares to shut down the ovaries, the fluctuation occurs in hormone levels. And also, if you're taking oral contraception, oral contraception, certain medications may alter your hormone levels as well. So those are some of the things that can contribute to headaches. But there are other headache triggers as well. Even though hormones play a significant role in headaches, they're not the only cause migraines, cluster headaches, or tension headaches can happen because of heightened stress or emotional distress. And that's why it's so important. I mean, we all have stress in our lives. It's how you manage the stress that matters. And, you know, sometimes that takes cognitive behavioral therapy. Sometimes that takes unlearning some poor behaviors that actually contribute to increasing your risk of getting headaches. But, you know, Therapy is a gift you give to yourself, and there are so many things that you can do to help you to manage your stress level. Anxiety is another thing that can give people headaches, 
And I mean, anxiety is the number one mental illness in North America. And when you're anxious as a result of stress, you're likely to eat unhealthy foods. You may not sleep as well, and you may engage in other behaviors that can perpetuate headaches as also. So anxiety, it's very, very important to get the appropriate treatment for anxiety. And there's everything from cog, uh, you know, conservative measures like cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy to medication if needed. Glare, the brightness from your computers, and we're all on computers. I'm on one right now, in fact, um, from the computer screen or sunlight or overhead lights or fluorescent lights can actually make your head hurt. So that's something else. So you want to have a particularly nice light and get rid of those fluorescent lights. But I know that a lot of offices still have those. Noise can actually bother a lot of people. They can be, it can be loud noise and repetitive or continuous low-level noise, and that can cause headache pain. Another person, though, can't give you a headache. Depending on your eating and sleeping patterns, if you're not sleeping at night, that can definitely cause headaches. Or also, if you're hungry, that can lead to headaches as well. Of course, a concussion um, headache is a very common symptom of a concussion. If you are, if you exert, um, you know, you're, you're in physical activity, that overexertion, especially people who maybe haven't exercised in a while, and then all of a sudden they're going to go for it. Uh, that overexertion leads to dilation of the blood vessels in your head and neck and scalp, and that can give you a headache as well. But by the same token, the flip side of that is that no physical activity or sedentary lifestyle can also cause headaches. So get up, get out there, get off the couch, get out, go for a walk, do something, go for a swim, go for a walk, play tennis, whatever you want to do, pickleball, volleyball. I don't care what it is. Just be active. Get out there. It will help you with your headaches. Sitting up straight helps the blood flow properly or straight. Um, and that can actually help you to avoid headaches as well, which is not something that we normally think about. And if you have any food sensitivities, there are certain types of foods or drinks that, that release neurotransmitters that can lead to headaches. So, so some of the more common ones are things like caffeine, aspartame, chocolate, alcohol, and, and aged cheeses like Parmesan. So basically everything I like. <laughs> um, and, and you too, I'm sure you like all of those things as well, but they can give you a headache. And to be honest with you, alcohol gives me tremendous headaches. That is one thing. That's why I don't really drink um, once or twice a year, maybe because I actually can't bear the headache along with the other symptoms that I get as well, like nasal congestion, earaches, nausea, fatigue, just, just, and that headache is just horrible. It's just not even worth it. Um, so be careful. Uh, chocolate doesn't really, a little bit too much chocolate that can certainly give me a headache. I really don't have that much caffeine in my life. Um, maybe have one cup of coffee here or there in the morning. Um, also dehydration, a lack of fluids can cause many different types of headaches. So it's very important to stay hydrated and drink plenty of water. I mean, I have to drink 11 to 12 cups of water a day to prevent a kidney stone that I've had once and I never, ever want to have it again. So that's uh, modifiable for me, that, that kidney stone. But headaches are one of the most modifiable disorders. And so there's definitely hope for seeking relief. And they are very simple things. And they are lifestyle changes for you, which are very hard. But you know what? It is spring. It is rebirth. It is time to start again. So start with those lifestyle changes. Maintain a healthy lifestyle. Eat nutritious foods. Make sure that you are adequately hydrated. Exercise frequently and sleep properly. And if you're not sleeping properly, get the help that you need. Also resting in a quiet, dark place can help or using a damp cloth on your forehead can provide additional relief for you. You may also want to gently rub the area where the headache is with your forefingers. Uh, you can also keep a journal. That's very important to keep a journal to better identify the triggers that you want to discuss with your physician. But, you know, you may need to go to a physician to talk about this because there are many tools in the toolbox. One of them is the NSAIDs, which is the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. Um, so even Aleve or Naproxen, Triptans. And there's also a new drug. It's a calcitonin gene-related 
peptide inhibitor. It's a CGRP is the category. And these drugs block the effect of CGRP, a small protein that is found in the sensory nerves that supply to the head and neck and can prevent headaches from occurring. So people who really suffer significantly, you can talk to your doctor about these new medications. And these are preventive medications. They're really for people whose headaches are disrupting their quality of life, but it is game-changing and it can be game-changing for you. And the, the bottom line is life is to be enjoyed, not endured, and you certainly can't walk around with a headache all the time. But headaches such as those resulting from a concussion, for example, for a concussion, for example may require specialized care during the recovery period. So your healthcare provider can help you determine what is right for you. So take the time, make an appointment with your doctor. It's a little bit of trial and error with headaches, but you know what? It is so worth it because it definitely can improve your quality of life. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is the part of the program where we go to bed together. I'm looking at going to bed soon. <laughs> Hopefully you are too. Um, you know, some days you're just a little bit more tired than others, especially when there's a holiday. And, you know, the family, the whole nine yards, you want to make it great for everybody and lovely. And anyway, a lot of preparation going into things and, you know, all the handmade chocolates that I create kidding <laughs> all of the uh <laughs> no no don't do any of that <laughs> cooking no didn't do that either <laughs> anyway but it's still tiring <laughs> nonetheless all that activity uh anyway hopefully you're having some activity as well but on this holiday maybe it's only every holiday that you get the activity anyway um, so I just wanted to talk about, uh, you know, this is, this email is representative of millions of emails that I receive. Uh, not really millions, like thousands, like tens of thousands. Um, <laughs> but so I brought them all together to read this particular one. Um, but this basically is just such a common issue that I feel like, you know what I'm going to say. Um, but it's a very, very common story. And there was just so much in this particular email that said, yeah, this is you, your entire neighborhood, all your friends, people you work with. I mean, this is so common. People don't realize that. They think they are alone. Um, you know, they think they have, they've got a hand on it. Um, but they don't. And they try lots of different things. And anyway, it's it can be very, very sad, this particular situation, even though it is just so common. People put up with it for years and years and years before they actually seek help. And and so I do see, this is all I see in my clinical practice for the most part. Um, on either end, I see some broken hearts, but I also, but this is also heartbreaking, but this is for the most part uh, what I see in my virtual clinic. Um, I do see a few patients that have um, bladder issues, um, and some other sexual health issues, but the relationship is fine. But this one in particular is extremely common. Uh, so why don't I just read the email and then you can guess what it's all about. Dear Maureen, I watched a lecture you created at TEDx long ago about sex-starved marriages, and I deeply appreciated it. I have been living a situation of that very kind. I am married to a great woman that I love. We have two beautiful children, but she never had the interest for sex and hugs, etc., etc. I desire it for me and for us. Her attitude dates back since the very beginning of our story, I would say after about six months, which is what you talk about in your video. We do have very rarely great sex. That happens about once every two or three months on holidays at times, occasionally. I got help from a psychologist, psychologist who helped me with EMDR, solving everything else and kept me going ahead with that. They were great sessions, by the way. She did as well. She went twice to two other doctors, 
but there were no results on that topic whatsoever. We tried couples therapy with another doctor, but even if she was enthusiastic about it, she often missed the deserving and unique moments for her and for us. I'm here to ask your opinion and perhaps even your help. Do you think you can help us? This is just such a very, very common situation. And then oftentimes people are asking for help. But I just want to go back a little bit. Many, many couples, there are so many commonalities here. And many, many couples say that uh, they love the spouse. And it doesn't necessarily mean that's only women who have low sexual desire. I mean, basically what I deal with is sexless marriages. And the sexless marriage is defined by the experts as, as sex less than 10 times a year. And that would hold true here. Once every two or three months is like four to six times a year. So that's nothing. Um, and so it's probably obligatory sex, which a lot of people don't like to have, but obligatory sex is, is actually fairly common. And, and sometimes it's a part of uh, obligatory sex, quickies, long lasting sex, um, you know, wild sex. So it can be a combination. It's, it's on a continuum to make a happy sex life, but it has to occur more than four to six times a year, typically. Uh, but if you're in a marriage or a relationship and you don't really care just how long, um, or how often, or how long, um, how often you are having intimate relations with your partner. And it, if it's very little and you're okay with that, then there is no problem. But, um, but this poses a problem. So, uh, for so many people and, you know, people will often put up with it for a very, very long time before they realize, Hey, uh, this is not the kind of uh, relationship that I want. This is not the kind of marriage that I want. And, um, you know, and so they, they start to seek help and the, you know, there's all sorts of, um, all sorts of, um, help for this, but you actually have to get the right kind of help. So this particular person mentioned that they had gone to EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And this is a highly regarded type of therapy that has been practiced since its invention in the 80s, but it continuously, continually gains awareness because it is effective in post-traumatic stress disorder treatment. And, and as I said, it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it simply put, it's a type of therapy with an eight-step process where the individual is asked to recall traumatic images while the therapist creates a sensory input such as side-to-side eye movements or even hand tapping. We've talked about that on the program before with experts in the field. And so, um, you know, people need to be trained in this type of therapy. But what that says to me is this particular person had some issues, you know, and past issues that have been unresolved can actually lead to issues in a relationship such as um, low sexual desire or loss of attraction to somebody. And there are a number of issues that can occur, but then children, and I'll I'll go over some of those, but then children come along, you know, and the sex decreases even more. So there can be a history of of trauma and people have had a history of trauma or people have had a history of uh, growing up in a, in a, uh, with addiction in their lives or neglect or poverty, um, you know, they may have issues in relationships. They may have issues with trusting. They may guess at what normal behavior is. They may have anxiety and depression. And so that's also very hard to live with somebody um, or to be attracted to somebody. Oftentimes there's a power imbalance in the relationship where one is is the caregiver, not in the sense that we were talking about earlier, but one is almost the parent um, to their partner because the partner just behaves in such an immature way or the doesn't provide security in the relationship or they may have job issues. Um, you know, there are just so many issues. Again, financial issues may, may lead to, um, desire issues in a relationship as well. And so there are so many things that can contribute to low sexual desire, but something else that occurs as well, at least with the patients that come to see me, they often say, and you know, there's nothing about me, but there's this just particular education that I provide, which I give to you for free. 
Um, and basically I'll share it with anybody because it doesn't matter if I scream it from the rooftops or not, everybody is going to hear it. And, you know, the sex education in this country is so poor and there's so much negative messages, negative messaging. And there are, you know, especially as it relates to religion and it's associated with shame and dirtiness. And a lot of people have also had sexual abuse, sexual trauma, that can actually impact an intimate relationship as well. So, but oftentimes my patients will, will say that they've gone to other healthcare providers, other doctors, but the subject was never addressed. And in part because some people, some physicians, some people in healthcare are very uncomfortable talking about sex because guess what? They didn't get the sex education in um, university either. And so, and also they, there may have been mixed messages or oftentimes depending on a person's sex, they may feel uh, uncomfortable talking to their patient about sex as well. So for example, a person who identifies as a male may have difficulty talking to somebody who identifies as a female or a they um, about sexuality and sexual health issues and sexual dysfunction and just the subject as well. But, you know, it's a functional uh, condition there, and there certainly can be dysfunction or disorder and, and low sexual desire certainly turns into that, um, or actually, um, exemplifies that. And so, um, but it, it is so, so common, like 40 to 50% of women experience low sexual desire. Uh, it can be related to menstruation, pregnancy, financial issues, job problems, you know, dealing, being in the sandwich generation, so, so many issues. Um, so it's very important to address this as well. And then oftentimes couples therapy doesn't work because one of the most common things to say to people who are not having sex is why don't you go to a cabin and, you know, for the weekend and, you know, basically you'll just, you know, have sex the whole time, but you're not going to, because you're going to bring your problems to the cabin as well. And so that's not going to work. And then oftentimes people will say, well, have a glass of wine. Well, that may or may not work for some people that may relax some, some women who experience low sexual desire, but it may not work, uh, as well. You know, so there are, you know, people don't necessarily understand how to speak to their patients about this in a, in a manner that is diplomatic and respectful and understanding and compassionate. This is a, a there's a, it's a very complex recipe in order to talk about this very, very sensitive subject and to be able to talk to both people in the, in the situation. But, um, you know, and it has a lot to do with, um, understanding desire and it's not, you know, there is, um, some great work done by Dr. Rosemary Vasson and it, it's a biopsychosocial model. You have to actually look at the, sociological, the psychological, the biological, the physical, so many aspects of a woman's life that can play into their desire. And so their motivation for having sex as well is also important. And, you know, sex begets sex, but you got to have it in order to do that. And so as long as the relationship is healthy and there's no abuse and there's no power control or anything like that, you know, it's, it is something, um, you know, that is important to receive the advances of the sexual partner, but there's also sexual pain. That's something else that contributes to low sexual desire as well, because nobody wants to do anything that is make, going to make them hurt. And so nobody wants to hurt somebody either. So there are so many, um, contributing factors. And so even in this email, this is again, extremely common. The fact that I don't really get the lowdown here. I don't get the background. I don't get what's exactly going on. Get a little bit with like, there's this love there. We have these two kids. We are amazing together, but she never really had the interest. You know, a lot of women just want to have babies. That is the truth. And so they kind of settle and it may not be the person that they're attracted to. The other thing is like, you know, certain things may have occurred. Somebody may have lost a job, gained a lot of abdominal weight. That can be a big turnoff or it can have erectile dysfunction, inability to attain and maintain an erection adequate for penetrative sex. So what you have to do is to go back and look and decipher what the actual problem is that is leading to the sexless marriage. That is the only way that you can treat this. There's no magic wand that I can wave. <laughs> 
In fact, the problem may be with your wand. Um, you know, and, and oftentimes people will come and they'll just be like, you know, we're, we were hoping that, you know, within a week you were, we were going to be able to have sex. You know, that's mainly one person of the couple is just saying that. But, but oftentimes the issues are so complex, it takes so much time um, to deal with them. So keep that in mind. That said, there are a number of treatments for low sexual desire in a woman or in a man. It can happen in, in either or they. Uh, it happens in heterosexual relationships. It happens in same-sex relationships. And, um, and it's just definitely something that ought to be addressed because, you know, sex is good for you. Sex is pleasurable. Sex can help you sleep. It can help with pain. It can help you feel younger. It can help you lose weight. There are so many things that just depends on how active you are. Um, there are so many benefits, um, to sex. So if you're having trouble in your marriage, may I suggest you seek the appropriate care of somebody who can actually help you specifically. There's no shame in this. Um, but there is so much gain anyway. Um, just thought I'd address that email that I get so frequently every single day I get you know, many, many of these emails and, and people looking for help. So go and get the help. It's important that you get that to have that loving, intimate relationship, because guess what? You deserve it. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.